Welcome to Feeding the Family with Dr. Kristen, where we help you navigate the challenges of feeding your family and learn about the role food plays in our health and relationships. Feeding and food relationships can be stressful, confusing, and even destructive. I'm Kristen Saxena, a pediatrician and mother of four who's been researching and sharing what I've learned about feeding for over 10 years. In this podcast, I'll share my experience and expertise to help our kids and ourselves with everyday survival tips for real parents. This podcast is about progress, not perfection. So let's get started. Welcome back to Feeding the Family with Dr. Kristen. I'm your host, Kristen Saxena. I'm going to remind you again to go ahead and hit that subscribe button if you're enjoying our episodes and make sure and tune in every week for a new episode of Feeding the Family. On today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about family meals, what makes a good family meal, and are family meals always beneficial? We're also going to talk a lot about the politics of food and what goes into that. We're joined today by our guest, John Finn. John Finn is a culinary expert, having trained as a professional chef at the French Culinary Institute, as well as a professor of government from Wesleyan University in Connecticut. All right, well, thanks for joining us, John. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm really excited to have you here. Now, um, I think that you have a very interesting academic history in that you are a professionally trained chef, correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And you trained at the French Culinary Institute. I did. Yeah. I went down from Connecticut to to New York City three nights a week. Didn't get back till two in the morning and slept in my office. Oh, my gosh. You were living the chef lifestyle, it sounds like. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But also you are a now retired or mostly retired uh, professor of government at Wesleyan University in Connecticut. Is that correct? Right, right. I was there 30 years. I taught constitutional law, the First Amendment, civil liberties, those sorts of things. Nothing to do with food at all. But you did teach some uh, food related courses. Is that right? Didn't you teach some like cuisine and culture? I think I... Yeah, it took a while to get the university on board, but I did start doing a couple of food-related courses. One was culture and cuisine, which was probably my favorite. Uh-huh. But I also did a course on food and film, which I still do up here for you know for the local library, which is a blast. And I actually taught a course, a hands-on physical course on how to do omelets one year. And that's what ultimately led to my cookbook on omelets. It started with a class. Right. And I actually did read that. Now, I haven't cooked any of the omelets in the book. But what I love is it's probably uh, the most philosophical cookbook I've ever read in my life. So we could talk about that a little bit, too. But that is called The Perfect Omelet. Um, And I, I don't think I've ever examined my life so much as reading sort of the first chapters of that book uh, as I have with any other and yet cookbook. you still invited me, so I know. thank you. Yeah. Well, all good things, all good food for thought. <laughs> but um, so I first came across kind of you and your work when I was reading Miriam Weinstein's book, The Surprising Power of Family Meals. And she's a guest that we've had on our show in the past. Yeah. And family meals are a huge... Um, just area of interest and sort of love of mine, sort of my my pet project is helping to spread the word about the benefits of family meals. Um, but in sort of some of our correspondence before you even came on, this came up as a topic that you would like to talk about. And I thought it was a really interesting topic to cover. As you said, you know, we've talked a lot about family meals and the benefits that that can confer to children and families, not just with health, but just sort of in outcomes and building resilience and all kinds of aspects. But you sort of brought up the point, which I think is a very valuable one to examine, is are family meals always beneficial? Well, um, in fairness to Miriam, I mean, she does actually talk about that in the book, as you know. So I want to say that Miriam gave me more than a fair hearing, and I was delighted to read her book. And most of it, I agree with. I think she's absolutely right. The data that we have from social science, at least, and from nutrition studies and pediatric studies, does seem to suggest pretty strongly that there are undeniable benefits to family meals. Um, 
I wouldn't put it that way. I think there are sometimes benefits to family meals. What I wouldn't deny, what, what I think is completely undeniable, is that family meals are important. It's just that sometimes we tend to idealize or romanticize what we think they are based on either what we experienced or what we wish we had experienced. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't dispute the importance of family meals. In fact, in some ways, uh, I think Miriam understates them in some ways. I mean, I've, I'm of the school that says that family meals are not only important to developing healthy family units, healthy children, who then hopefully become healthy adults, they're important for societies writ large. I mean, in the family meal, people learn things, children in particular learn things, but adults, parents too, about how to interact, about how to get along, about when it's necessary to be firm, when it's necessary to compromise. Those are all incredibly valuable skills that you need to navigate when you become adults and that societies need to navigate as they wrestle with their most difficult problems, whether it's climate change or how to care for seniors or how to deal with welfare issues. All of those skills that you learn at the family table can be dramatically important. And there are even social scientists who argue that you can directly correlate whether a family structure is democratic or authoritarian with how strong democracies are or how weak democracies are. Huh. Don't dispute any of that. In fact, I think it's fascinating. But I think you have to acknowledge that sometimes family meals can be moments of profound stress, mm -hmm. profound anxiety, and not all of us remember them with such fondness. I don't have it with me. I should have put it in the background. But I am the person that Miriam talked about when she said there used to be a family that would set the timer. That story has now made it through three or four different books or three or four different authors. And every time I pick it up, it causes me great anxiety because that was me. That was my mother. She set the timer there. And if you didn't eat everything on your plate, that was okay. She'd give you five minutes. And if you still didn't eat it, then the dreaded timer came out and she'd set it. Like I said, I still have it. Oh and she'd gosh. say, you got 10 minutes. And if you don't do it in 10 minutes, I'm going to double the portion. And I'm telling you, this could go on for an hour, two hours, if we both got our backs up and we invariably did. Uh, happily, the dog usually came to my rescue. <laughs> As an adult, I realized later that my mom probably knew the dog was playing a helping hand. But <laughs> at some point, you know, you learn to compromise. Even my mother learned how to compromise. Uh, you know, you can learn a lot about families and learn about a lot about politics and power. Um, some families are more egalitarian. Some families are more nurturing, more loving. Some families want to be but don't meet the standard and others show no concern for developing these kind of civilized traits at all. And I just think it's important to understand that that doesn't invalidate any of the research about the benefits of family meals. It does not. Yeah. It doesn't invalidate anything Miriam did. If anything, it testifies to the importance of family meals and making sure that we do our best to get them right. Absolutely. Well, I think that that just underscores a very important point that as we sort of tout these benefits and tr try to celebrate the family meal and and endorse the importance of it, to me, like the big takeaway from that is, but it needs to be a positive, joyful experience, really, to to reap the benefits of the family meal, the effort needs to be put into prioritizing the joy and happiness. Now that said, that doesn't mean that every day at the table is going to be this happy celebration. You know, I, I'm the biggest nerd about family meals there is, and there's, I have four kids. Kids get in trouble at the table, for sure. <laughs> yeah, so I right. would not say, you know, not every day is it like, oh, well, that was the most joyous experience. But that also, you know, when done intentionally can be a beneficial right. experience, I think, right, for exactly. the whole family. Um, but right. the overall experience. So then I guess looking back, like you said, you kind of had this specific memory from your own childhood of the timer and sort of this maybe authoritarian type experience at the table what what do you glean from that or kind of what are your how did you use that information how do you see it affecting you now and how did that change if at all the way you approached it with your own family well it's it's my, my thinking about it has changed dramatically as i've gotten older when i was much younger i don't think i attributed any significance to it at all and all i had were really glowing memories 
um, all of which were true, by the way, of my mother being a spectacular cook, and she was a spectacular cook. Um, I, I don't think I've romanticized that. There were some things she just could not cook, and to this day, I won't go anywhere near them because she butchered them so badly. <laughs> but overall, she was an extraordinarily accomplished cook. And perhaps more importantly, although I didn't begin to realize this until later on, she was an extraordinarily accomplished teacher. When we could avoid the, you have to eat that because I made it mm -hmm. routine, which didn't happen at every meal. It only happened, you know, occasionally. She was generous. She was forgiving. She was accommodating. She was desperate in some ways for me to learn what her childhood had been like, the meals she had loved, how she had connected to her family growing up with them. And I, I'd like to think anyway that I've kept that alive as best I can. Now, as a parent, you know as well as I do, that what you want your children to learn and what they take away are not always the same things. And I'm not persuaded that my two adult children care about cooking, care about family in the same ways that I do. But I think someday they probably will. And I hope what they will have learned is something that I really learned from the conjoined experiences of terror and triumph that I had at my mother's feet. And that is that we're all just doing the best we can. You know, and that was an important, I mean, I listened to Miriam's podcast with you, and it was one of the most entertaining, delightful things I've ever heard. Oh. But, and I took that to be one of the primary messages that the two of you managed to convey, right? Do what you can. Yeah. It's the intentionality. It's the mindfulness that's really important. And that's what children will take away, I think, in the long run. I don't expect my children necessarily to become great chefs or to love what I loved or even to like the foods that I like. But I do hope they learn something about trying to make an effort and doing the best you can with what you have. The other thing I'd want to say about that just real quickly is I think as I've gotten older and older, I've begun to realize that that food, family meals in particular, cooking, learning how to cook, it's all autobiography. And mm -hmm. it's important that you take that part of it all that seriously, as seriously as you can. Can you, I love that idea. So can you elaborate a little bit on what you mean about that? Well, it's a trope. And again, that makes it sound like it's unimportant, but it's not. It's a truism, but it's true that food is identity, right? I mean, who, what you are is what you eat and all the rest of it. But it, it's so fundamentally true in ways that I don't think we realize on a day-to-day -day level. Occasionally, it surprises us. We all have the memory, the, the smell that comes to you unbidden, and you think, where have I where have I sensed that before? That reminds me of chocolate chip cookies or the famous Madeline, right? I mean, <laughs> or the Madeline. I mean, it's it's that, but it's so much more. I mean, it's it's so much the sense of how you do things in the kitchen transfers to how you do everything in some way. So, I mean, I have little rules that come up, and I sometimes I don't even remember where they come from. Like, here's one that it's just about cooking, but it applies to so many other things in life. My mother used to say all the time, whatever the recipe says, double the amount of vanilla that it calls for. <laughs> and I just did it mindlessly for years upon years until I started thinking about it and said, well, you know, there's a lot of things in life for which that rule works really, really well. Uh, but there are some places where it works really badly. And I'd never, I never sought to think about it. And what that prompted for me was, well, what other kinds of truisms am I taking for granted and not really exploring to see whether they work, when they work, when they don't work. More importantly, when I say food is autobiography or family meals are autobiography, and this is something I know that you and Miriam touched upon, um, so much about food and the family is about telling stories and learning about how you connect with other people. Mm -hmm. Both of my daughters are adopted, um, and that's an important sort of part. I mean, they don't have the same kind of immediate access to memories of my family that I have or that my wife has, it's important for us to share them and to show them how they're connected in these larger ways. And, you know, sometimes the stories are humorous. Um, <laughs> I'd like to think they're humorous anyway. I'm an old man. They're probably only funny to me. <laughs> but but some of them are sad, and there's nothing wrong with that. Some of them are, are kind of like warning signs, like, don't let this happen, because that happened to Uncle Joe. Um, you know, there are all sorts of lessons there. Um, and that's what I mean by autobiography. That's where you learn who others are. And it's by learning who others are in your family that you learn at least something about who you are. 
Definitely. Yeah, I thought to me that was one of, and I think I talked about that with Miriam, but that was one of my biggest takeaways. As someone that was already prioritizing family meals, maybe for reason, other reasons um, than all the things she mentioned, the big takeaway for me was really that storytelling piece. And not that it has to be formalized or any, you know, not coming to the table with a story, but just that that piece, I think it confers so many benefits to the whole family um, that being a little bit more intentional about that, I think is enormous. The other thing from what you said before with your mother, what I loved about that too is like you said, you kind of said there's almost this like infamous story that most people would kind of think, oh, what a, what a negative experience with the timer and you know how traumatic and what, what a horrible thing to do to a child. And yet... You still said, you know, actually, largely my experience was very positive because of all the wonderful things that actually happened around the kitchen and cooking and dinner with your mother. And I feel like as a parent, that's an excellent reminder because I think we often will look back and think, oh, gosh, like, what was I doing? You know, that was not as you go. That was not the way to approach things. And so I think it's a good reminder to say we'll all have those timer situations or those things that we look back on and we're like, wow, I handled that real bad. Um, But in reality, you know, you can know that hopefully, you know, your grown son in the future is going to go, well, you know what? Actually, it's kind of that 80, 20 percent. 80-20 rule where you go 80% of the time it was fabulous and 20% you know mom was a disaster but that's okay (laughs) and even that's a lesson as you get older and become a parent you go I get it right (laughs) right and I mean there are all sorts of lessons like that I mean one is empathy for others right and in this case empathy for your parents I mean there really is something to the you know there's something to the fact that you don't know how hard it is to be a parent until you're a parent it's easy when you're a child um in my memories are, I don't know about the, the 80-20 rule is a good one. Um, that might work. That might be pretty accurate. I, if, if I were forced to, I'd probably probably narrow it down to maybe two-thirds, one-third, but we're quibbling, right? I mean, the important <laughs> thing is, the important thing is that as you get older, you begin to realize that even the bad things had an important influence on your life. And what really matters over the long run is not that you remember them, but what you do with the memories. So, mm-hmm. you know, I am sure my children, when I'm gone, will have plenty to say about all the things I messed up. Um, but I hope they will eventually reach the point that I reached with my parents. And that is that even when things were really bad, and believe me, they could get much worse than the kitchen timer. That's just the one for public consumption. <laughs> sure. <laughs> the, in retrospect, there was a there was a purpose to it. I mean, what my mother wanted me to become was a Catholic, mindful, healthy eater. I mean, she wanted me to eat things that she thought would be healthy for me. She wasn't trying to poison me. It seemed so at the time. <laughs> um, but um, and like I said, it didn't entirely work. Um, to this day, I won't set foot in the same room with a lima bean. It's, if like, lima <laughs> beans are anywhere near, then I'm gone. Um, but you know, I'm. I, I think what she wanted to what she wanted to accomplish was was nothing but good for us. Um, that said, I mean, I know there are parents who don't have any of that kind of well-intentioned stuff, right? I mean, let's not sugarcoat it. There are bad parents, just like there are bad people. But I like to think they are few and far between, and that uh, hopefully most of us don't have to experience them. Yeah. Well, so to shift gears a little bit, but sort of related. So in Miriam's book. Uh, what she most talked about was your, it related to you was that course that you taught that was the cuisine and culture course. And I believe what she, or what you relayed was that you were finding that a number of your university students were coming to class and saying that they never really learned to cook or they had never really had, uh, much experience in the kitchen and it sounded like that they were really experiencing that as a loss yeah i mean that really surprised me to be honest um now part of it was just my own short-sightedness i mean i grew up cooking next to my mother in the kitchen and i assumed pretty much everybody did but starting to teach college students 
and you have to recognize I taught at a particular kind of place, trying to be Wesleyan universities, this, you know, super prestigious liberal arts community. Kids are getting, you know, perfect SAT scores and doing every extracurricular activity, you know, to get into places like Wesleyan. So, you know, there's a kind of image you get, particularly of kids who grew up in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s of they didn't have family meals because they were too busy going to field hockey practice or they were too busy going to football practice or orchestra or band or whatever it was they did. And God knows, raising my own kids during those times, they did everything. It seemed like yeah. it was critically important for all of us that they experience every activity known to humankind. But one thing they didn't experience was family meals mm -hmm. and when they did they were always meals that were either bought at the store and served to them or meals that parents had prepared for them there was very little experience i found at least with the kinds of kids i taught of actually setting foot in the kitchen and learning where recipes come from and how to purchase food um, the idea about how to purchase food by the way is was so strange to many of them that I started using the examples of food purchasing and store shopping in my constitutional law courses. I used to tell people, how do you interpret the constitution? And they'd say, well, it's simple. I said, no, it's not. And I'd give them a, a recipe. I would literally say, I'm gonna cook pasta bolognese for dinner tonight. And then I give them options, which is gonna work for you. I'm gonna tell you that and send you to the store to buy it. And that's all you get. Buy me the stuff for pasta bolognese. Or do I say, I'm gonna cook Martha Stewart's version of pasta bolognese, and here's her recipe. So borrow off of that. Or am I going to say, look, I need to make sure you buy the exact right kind of San Marzano tomatoes. Make sure you get this. Make sure it's the 16 out can. You can imagine this wide range of opportunities. Every time I use this example, I expected kids to tell me, even after I knew better, Kristen, I expected kids to tell me, give me the just buy the stuff for pasta bolognese. But they didn't. They wanted the, tell me what size can I need to buy. Make sure you tell me what size you want the basil leaves to buy. And while we're at it, tell me where I'm going to find basil in the grocery store. Because I was looking in the canned foods and I didn't see any canned basil. I mean, it was just extraordinary to me that kids were growing up this way. I think part of what led to my teaching the omelet course, for example, where kids were saying, we love culture and cuisine, but you're not teaching us how to cook. So can we please do some hands-on food courses? And eventually I relented because that's what they wanted to learn. I have to say, if I had been at a community college or a different kind of place, I'm not sure my experience would have been the same. Like I said, you know, kids grow up in different yeah. socioeconomic yeah. kinds of households and their experiences are likely to be different. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think that that's a good point because that's even something that we talk about. I mean, from the 70s and 80s to now, necessarily cooking in the kitchen and family meals are not necessarily always, you know, I think like that privileged by society or not. I mean, I know having four kids still, we prioritize that. And yet it's still a struggle because there's still that push to keep everybody in, you know, their activities that they want to be in and the ones that you think they should be in and, the, you know, extra this and extra that. Um, so you have to be conscientious about it. And I think it's very easy, again, to like overlook the importance of that. And there again, having kids in the kitchen and getting them to this point now they're in college and, and like you, you like you said, like they don't have these skills. And so that then already we've kind of if we aren't able to remedy that we've kind of lost that for the future generations that skill essentially yeah. yeah although you know one one thing that makes me feel sort of hopeful and optimistic about it is that it's been my experience at least that as children grow older and they grow into their college years or their early adulthood years a great many of them are anxious to learn how to cook and sometimes it's because they want to cook for themselves sometimes it's because this harkens back to the theme we were talking about earlier it's because they realize they can begin to learn things about you and their family and themselves that they took for granted before so um i have two younger brothers for example who uh, my mother died when they were quite young and they were probably you know 10 12 13 or so when my mother died um so they've the, they don't have much experience with any of this. I mean, I tell these stories about what it was like growing up and they're like, that didn't happen. They were too young to have experienced any of it. They don't 
they don't cook now, but they're constantly asking me, hey, do you have mom's recipe for X? Do you have mom's recipe for boneless fried chicken or rouladen or whatever? And turns out I do actually have all her old handwritten recipes. And it's really important to them that I send them the recipes. I won't because I don't want to lose them, but it's not enough for me to type them out or to to handwrite them out. They want me to take the image of my mom's handwritten recipe mm -hmm. because that's a way of sort of tangibly connecting to this memory. And that's, I, I think a lot of kids, as they reach young adulthood, they begin to experience that kind of sense of, of longing. And I think that that's an interesting concept to think about because I, I feel like the days of the, you know, note card recipe box are no, no more. Even, you know what I mean? Most of us, if we're cooking from recipes, it's something we found online or in a book or, and maybe you have a book and even that is, you know, kind of old school. I feel like I have all these recipe oh, yeah. books yeah. and I'm like, ah, do yeah. I need all these? I'll just look stuff up online. But you've got them all dog-eared yeah. and well-loved and all right. of that. But I think, and I did at one point, you know, I had some little note cards, but I don't, you know, I don't ever do that anymore. It just seems, you know, okay. everything's kind of electronic, but I think that will be interesting to see because that nostalgic piece it's the whole sensory experience, right? It's the food right. that they remember, but it's the whole thing. Like this is her handwriting and it, I think that that's just more important than we realize at the time. Yeah, um, yeah and it will be very interesting to see what, what happens. I mean, because as you say it, I'm thinking out loud, I don't have a lot of handwritten recipes either. I have printouts mm -hmm. <laughs> that may have notations on them, right? And, and I store them all haphazardly in this, weird little binder you know i maybe it will be enough for one of my kids to have the binder i mean or the handwritten notations i don't know it'll be interesting to see you know how this next generation copes with that yeah definitely and i mean i, I mean and i don't know i don't know how important that is or isn't and you know it's the plus yeah. minus because at the time that was that was the best resource people had and now you know you can find any famous chef's recipe for whatever, you know, and so it, it's yep. plus minus, but I think that that's really interesting. So can you talk a little bit, what was some, sort of the sentiment of some of the students? Do you recall, like, I mean, as they talked about it, what, how did they feel about their experience or what did they, how did they wish it had been different? What changes did they want for their future? Yeah, I'm, I guess the, the most important thing I took away, or at least the, the thing I took away most frequently, I should say, is not a sense of loss, because they weren't really sure what they were missing, but kind of a sense of curiosity about what would it have been like to have grown up where you're learning these things, where family meals are kind of a joint production and a joint ceremony, a joint ritual, rather than something you simply had to check off the day as you were on your way to soccer practice. I, mean, I, I think, I don't think they were sad again, because sadness might require some physical sense of what it is you're missing. Mm -hmm. um, it was more curiosity, sometimes sheer puzzlement. Because um, I, I certainly had students who wanted to say, well, all the you know, I used to sign Miriam's book, for example, and they would say all the things that Miriam says make sense, but but they would invariably get hooked on the idea that it's not really a family meal unless somebody is cooking it in the kitchen and then putting it on a plate and serving it down. And you know, that that isn't Miriam's message at all, at least not the message I got from Miriam. Um, but they they rebelled they wanted a certain number of them wanted to say well you know if if all my mother ever did was buy you know a bucket of chicken from kfc and serve it that was a family meal because we sat down together and part of me wanted to say yes and actually miriam wouldn't have any problem with that uh -huh. i mean if that's what you do that's what you do right i mean it's um so that there was always this sort of sense that implicit in and this sort of takes us full circle some of them had the sense that emphasizing the importance of family meals was a kind of soft subtle criticism of their childhood mm. um, and it was made worse by the fact that it was coming from somebody like me who you know i was trained as a chef and here i was a tenured university professor of course i cooked right um and here i am extolling the importance of family meals um I, some of it i think was kind of rebellion in a sense that they were being criticized and i wanted to say no it's it's not that at all it's it's more a sense of 
how do we create community? And there are lots of different ways to do it. There's not a single right way to do it, but this is certainly one very powerful way to do it. That's that's really interesting. Um, so switching gears a little bit, but I feel like having you here and the opportunity um, to talk a little bit about food being political, you being a chef, as well as a government professor. Um, and I know you. we talked about this a little bit, but obviously people say that all the time. And, you know, on the show, again, we often talk about family meals and things like having structure and helping you add variety to your diet. Those are kind of like universal things that can help just about anyone um, have a better healthier diet, have a better relationship with food and raise their kids to do the same. Beyond that, I think a lot of things start to enter what I what I consider sort of your food values. And that can be a lot of things, you know, do you value um, health more than anything? Do you value the enjoyment of food? Cultural, or am I trying to pass on, you know, my cultural heritage through my food? Um, religious things, and then certainly politics. And we hear that all the time. And, um, but I think it's even more pervasive in our food than most of us realize. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, to you, what does sort of the politics of food mean? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked. Um, and I'm more comfortable answering this question 20 years after I started asking it than I, than I was at the beginning. And oh, gosh, I know. I'm like, actually reluctant to even say politics, period. But... <laughs> <laughs> so, like, uh. Well, I mean, you know, I am, you know, as you said, I'm a, I am or was a government professor. And when I first proposed doing food related courses, there was a lot of pushback, you know, a lot of insistence that, look, dude, we hired you to teach about the Supreme Court, the Constitution. That's political. Yeah. But food, food's got nothing to do with politics. I mean, it really took me a couple of years to, I want to say persuade, but it was probably more like strong arm people into allowing me to do this course. And I remember vaguely at one point, you know, somebody said, look, we're willing to let you do it, but we don't want to take responsibility for it. So you need to write up a two or three page memo that describes all the ways that food is political. And I was not a, t a good team player, I'm sorry to say, I'm really embarrassed to say, I was angry because it just seemed obvious to me that food was political. And rather than being a good teacher, which is take this opportunity and teach people why food is political, I got my backup. And I probably learned that from my parents. And <laughs> I just wrote one sentence. <laughs> I wrote, sometimes nations go to war over food. And I left it at that, right? And fortunately, Wesleyan was the kind of decentralized place where I could get away with that, right? Um, yeah. I've started thinking a whole lot more seriously about it since then. And, you know, if we could go back to that to that image that so many of us have when we talk about family meals of two parents and a bunch of kids and a dog sitting around a dinner table. And it used to be that people thought, well, food is political because sometimes at those family dinners, people will talk about politics, in particular parents, and they'll transmit political values. And there was actually a lot of truth in that. There still probably is a lot of truth in that. One of the things we know about po uh, political party identification, for example, is that what you identify as a, as, you know, as a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian, it's not perfectly correlated, but the strongest predictor of what you are is what your parents were. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, where do you learn these things? You learn a lot of them at the family dinner table. But, but when I think of food as being political, I think it encompasses a lot more than that. Um, it teaches you about culture, um, what kinds of foods you choose to eat, for example, say a lot about what you think is important in the world. You mentioned this. Are you choosing to eat based on aesthetic considerations, political considerations? Are you vegan, for example, because it's a political principle that you hold to? And maybe we don't even want to call that a political principle. Maybe it's a moral principle that you hold to. Or, or are you vegan because your doctor has told you that this is probably the healthiest lifestyle given your physical condition? Um, but there's a lot more to it than that, too. We're thinking politics on a personal level. Uh, do you go to a farmer's market? Why? Do you go because you think it's important to support local producers? I do. I mean, that's the most yeah. important thing to me. But you might go because that's where you find like-minded people, or you might go because you think that's where you find the freshest food, or you might go because you think that's where you find organic food. I mean, or maybe food just enjoy the experience. <laughs> or enjoy the yeah. experience, right? I mean, yeah. so there can be all sorts of reasons. But food also had this kind of global 
political significance as well. When you start thinking about um, genetically modified mm -hmm. food organisms, for example, or the fact that trade policies and tariffs often involve nationwide, inter-nation state conflicts about food. Um, just domestically, I've been just um, just overwhelmingly sort of impressed and stunned by the development of local food sovereignty issues. For example, Maine now has a pending on one of its ballots, pending ballots, what's called the right to food provision, right? And there are all sorts of fantastic things. Or think about this, and this is my favorite example. Um, what's the proper definition of Parmigiano Reggiano or Champagne or an AOC wine. I mean, nations literally go to court or to war fighting over what the correct authentic definition of a foodstuff is. One of the things I talked about in a couple of my writings, um, academic, was that the notion of authenticity, what counts as authenticity in food, is fundamentally a set of political questions about who gets to decide what authenticity means, who gets to decide what the definition of authenticity is, who gets to decide, who decides what's authentic. It's all fundamentally about power. And power isn't necessarily an evil thing. Power is simply the capacity or the authority to make decisions about things that are important to us. And when you think about food, there are very few things in life that require as much decision-making on as frequent a basis as food, whether it's on that individual level about what am I going to eat today or what am I going to eat tomorrow, as opposed to, well, only a certain region in Italy gets to declare this the real kind of cheese. Right. And only a certain, right. you know, those are, that's politics written small at the micro level and politics at the largest possible level you can imagine. And food embraces them all. And I love that idea, too, because as, as you mentioned that, um, and how political that is and how that can really be a microcosm of kind of all of the forces at work is who gets to decide. And then I laugh because like, for example, like champagne, I would think, right? That's one of those types yeah, of things. Right. And yet, yeah. if all of us like jokers just walk around calling all of our bubbly wine champagnes, did it really yeah, matter? Right. Like for the masses right, right. in the end, it's like right. nobody cares. <laughs> Right, right, right. Yeah. Although inevitably, inevitably, you'll meet the one guy, right? The one person says, well, you know, is going to insist, right? I mean, um, but, you know, to, to show you how on some level as a government professor, it's the, the macro issues, you know, mm -hmm. the big nation state issues that that should interest me. But as a person, it was always the more personal ones that, that really sort of fascinated me the most. Um, I once started to write an article and now for the life of me i can't remember if i ever finished it that tried to make the argument that food is political by using this example um, and i don't know if you've ever had to experience this most people have i think uh, i am perennially either on a diet or know that i should be and i've learned over the years that whenever i start a diet it's always going to be on monday <laughs> And if I go off of a diet, it's always going to be on Friday. And after years of examining this, I started thinking that's politics at its most profound and its smallest at the same time. That's that's the Monday John Finn saying, I'm going to be virtuous this week. <laughs> and the Friday's John Finn saying, to heck with that. I mean, I don't know what you were thinking, but you're in the past, bud. I'm here now and I'm I'm driving now, right? And it's yeah. you know, it's a political relationship between John Finn at one point in time and John Finn at a subsequent point in time, or it's a political relationship between John the virtuous and John the gluttonous. <laughs> There's totally. never a final battle or final stuff. Well, I can relate in the sense that I, I have a very strong, like, I only like to start things on Sundays, Mondays, or the first of the month. And it totally makes no sense. Like, got but it, I'm the same it. way. I'm like, well, that sounds like a Monday thing. I'm not going to start that on a Thursday. Who does right. that? Right. So right, exactly. I totally yeah. understand. But again, you're right. It's exactly just these sort of like arbitrary side rails that have like directed my entire life for no reason whatsoever. So it totally makes sense. But I think, I mean, also like along those lines of just thinking about the politics of food, for me especially, I think you, you go through the day to day and you don't always think about it. But when you do, like you said, that's that's a decision that we make multiple times a day in terms of what food are we eating? What, you know, where are you buying your food? All of these things that actually 
is a decision that you do frequently. So to me, you know, examining the things that are important to you and seeing the ways that those decisions can influence the things that are important to you, um, I think it's worth examining. And it's something that like on the day to day, I would say I don't go through thinking a whole lot about. But, you know, but when you do, when you think about things like um, one thing we had like, Chef Ann on the show, and I'm also sort of very interested in school lunch and food in schools. And I think that that is a very, um, that's an opportunity that's really worth trying to improve. Um, But it kind of brings to mind when you think about what school lunch is, part of that, you know, then brings to mind, well, you know, what what the government says is an appropriate school lunch has something to do maybe with what they think could be a nutritious lunch for a child, but probably more to do with, you know, big agriculture and what do what makes sense from an economic standpoint. And so, right. you know, things like that, that, I mean, you think school lunch is just this simple thing and it actually has so much to do with our government and big agriculture and um, you know, everything like that. And then same thing with like universal school lunches. And that's something that's coming up now, you know, uh, free food for every kid in school. And that again, you know, then you're starting to talk about social justice issues and, and all of those things. And so little things like your kid's tray at school literally has enormous political implications and is the result of giant political decision making but that phrase you use giant political decision making is is an important one and and a a really insightful one it reminds me of of the work of marion nestle who's written extensively on food politics and that's a point that she makes time and time again to to great effect i think and but in, in I, I couldn't do anything more than than simply underscore the importance of what you said. But I would add also that if you're thinking about something like school lunches, for example, that to the extent that you can get children involved in the decision making involved in what's going to be on the menu. And we've seen plenty of opportunity or plenty of examples where children do become involved. Um, that's an important way of teaching them how to be politically engaged, how to be politically active, how to take responsibility for their own lives. Uh, it's important to in developing obviously healthy eating habits, but it's also important in developing healthy political habits or, or habits or, or it's teaching them about what it means to be a civil citizen or a citizen more broadly. And again, that's one of the, the really sort of most important things about food is that it serves as a lever for becoming engaged on so many different levels. Um, one of the most important things I ever remember reading as a graduate student was a piece about lunch cafeteria trays and you all remember those plastic trays we used to have to collect and it was all about the politics involved in getting students to actually return them back to where they were supposed to go and that's that i used to assign that little piece to the culture and cuisine course and that led to probably 10 years worth of student papers on the politics of school lunches and it would address all of those things that you mentioned as well as the logistics of how to get the trays back as well as well, I'm very curious people, well, were people stealing the plates or <laughs> well it, it depends on what schools you were talking about I mean at, at the high school and elementary school level it's just kids running off and leaving the trays on the tables right which somebody then has to collect right um, in colleges it was typically no actually running off with the trays and the food and the silverware and rushing them back to the dorms so you know, you got different species of the same kind of problem. But the other thing I learned was, and again, I would never have thought of this, but maybe it takes somebody who's much closer to childhood than I am. I'd get papers that were like, well, the other dimension of school lunch politics is how kids interact with each other. Who gets to sit at what table? Oh, yeah. uh, what happens when you're talking about the politics of food trading um, and sharing it? And yeah, I mean, it's it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You can define politics big, you can define politics small, no matter which approach you take, you're going to find it involved in food. I think that's a good point. And I always think of the the lunchroom, again, as this sort of like classroom. Um, and I yeah. wish it was treated more that way. But I think as you bring that up, there's certainly the politics, like you said, of where you're sitting. And this is sort of the social constructs of the cafeteria that I feel like every kid who's ever been to junior high can remember, um, you right. know, with great pain. Uh, but yeah. even, even at the smaller level, just 
something you alluded to earlier, I think, is just how much autonomy or decision-making process does a child have in the lunch line, for example. And even that, I think, is something worth exploring because, you know, I always think of school as a place where we we are very fortunate because we can put some guardrails in to help that all the choices are good choices, if you will. But then there's also that opportunity where, but this is a place where a kid can then kind of safely, if we're doing it correctly, safely make good choices, but feel like they're autonomously making their choices for themselves. And both are important, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. at least from my perspective, obviously nobody needs to defend the importance of making sure they make healthy choices. But I hope it's equally obvious to most people that it's important, equally important, that children learn to take responsibility for themselves and that they feel like they have some responsibility of their own to to make decisions that will be intelligent decisions. And sometimes, sadly, that means you have to let them make some some bad decisions too. You learn as much from the bad, I suppose, as you do from the good. Right. Oh, and I'm just I'm just getting into the teenage years with my kids. So that makes you know, I always feel like little kids make have little problems. And so right. you know, I'm, I'm lucky so far, but yeah. so yeah. I, I wanted to just I wish you continued good luck. Oh yes. my gosh, I will need it. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um so just wanted to um move on to our next segment of our show, which we call Ask Me Anything. So I have a couple of questions, mostly related to um, food and politics. And so the first question is from Chris, and that is, what is one way that you live out your political views or values through the way that you eat? Me personally. Um, Mm -hmm. All right, well, this is a small one, but it builds on part of what we were talking about earlier. I will only eat real Parmigiano-Reggiano. I mean, in part because, not because I care about whether it's authentic or not. To me, the authenticity issue is is kind of overblown. I do it because I think it's important to support communities of interest, um, communities that can, local communities that can thrive. Here's another way I try to do it. Um, If it's at all possible, I will only buy farmer's markets eggs or eggs from the side of the road. Now, I'm not perfect. I mean, there are plenty of times when I don't have eggs and I can't think of where I'm going to go get eggs. Even then, I'll try to do my best at the supermarket to buy organic or whatever. Uh, Again, because I want to, this is just me, I'm not judging anybody else. I don't want to support giant chicken farm agriculture. Mm-hmm. I just don't. I'm not comfortable doing it. I'm not trying to imply a criticism of anybody else. It's just I have certain things I believe and I want to try to act on them as best I can. Um, but uh, I'm not, I'm a far from perfect actor. Um, I, I routinely compromise my beliefs for other things like convenience or sometimes money um, or sometimes I'm just lazy. Um, those are two small things. Now, on larger things, um, I spent a good part of my academic career trying to examine the relationship between women's identities and food as a way of expressing identity. So I, I have tried most to generate a lot of my academic writing around themes that will emphasize stress, the importance of agency in women making decisions about food. Um, I like to build on a concept used by another professor, Annie Hocklaus, and about what she calls the food voice, about how when you make food choices, you are speaking. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's critically important as a society that we hear people's food voices, and in particular that we hear the food voices of people who are traditionally marginalized or under underpowered in American society. So I have tried to bring a spotlight to food writing um, by women or food writing by people from marginalized groups and trying to show why we should take those food voices more seriously than we do. I love that idea. Um, And I'm, you know, I'm not exactly sure what all the content of that writing is, but I love the concept. And I, I love that you brought up, I mean, yes, even now, I think the majority of family food-related decisions are probably made by women. I I think that's shifting some, which is wonderful. But certainly, I would say we're still in a place where that's probably true the majority of time. But I love um, just sort of that validity and the highlighting that you do to the 
amount of power that can actually exist within that decision-making framework. And I think sometimes even the people doing it overlook it. Um, But to realize like not only for yourself and your family, are you able to make those decisions that can be so important in their own health and well-being, but some of these things too, like you said, when you're making the decision to you know, buy local, you're, you're making your voice be heard in terms of this is how I feel. This is my opinion about the economy. Um, or things, you know, like, um, I, for me, I try to, I try and I would say I fall directly in line with you. These things go to the wayside for multiple reasons on various different days, but I try to mostly buy like as much unprocessed food as possible same kind of idea I mean not only for the health benefits and I think that nutritionally it's better for us but also for the fact that you know I don't necessarily want to be supporting these large companies that are you know marketing to my children and trying to sell us things that are full of chemicals and are less good for us that said we have all the things so I I don't you know what I mean you will routinely find chips and cookies in a bag and all kinds of things in my house so I'm not saying that by any means, and again, not trying to demonize anybody's Lunchable or whatever you've got going on. We've all been there. But at the same yeah. time, when, you make, when you're sitting there at the store to make that conscious decision, it is, it is a voice and it is, um, it is a political decision. And I think like not to overlook the importance of those small decisions because like you had said before, it's a decision we make probably more often than almost anything in our lives. And so the cumulative effect of that is still, you know, something that's worth highlighting and something that's worth thinking about and doing. Absolutely. I, I, you know, I always wanted to be more than a chef, more than a government professor. I always wanted to be a philosophy professor. Uh, And for years I was scared away from it because I thought, well, you know, government's easy philosophy. That's tough. Um, That requires real thinking. And I was pretty sure I wasn't up to it. I'm still sure I'm not up to it, but I've learned, I think that, Philosophy can be a lot simpler, too. Um, I, I'm inclined to the point of view that philosophy is really just a way of thinking about who we want to be and how we want the world to be at the same time. And the two have to have to match up in some important ways. That's why we were talking about this earlier in the notions of mindfulness and intentionality. And I know those were themes you hit with Miriam as well. That's what philosophy is. That's mm-hmm. that's that's what it means to be a human being, to think about the decisions we make. And none of us are ever fully human. None of us are ever fully mindful about what we do and why we do it. And it's not our fault. The world conspires against us. But when we have the opportunity to think about what we're doing, it's worth trying to exercise that opportunity. You know, I once read a book. It had a profound influence on me. I think the the author's name was Diane Finkelstein, um, and she wrote a book called uh, Dining Out was the name of it. And it was, this is probably from the 70s or the 80s, it was, it was audacious in the most enormous sense of the word. The thesis was that people who go out all the time to eat are really just mindless, (laughs) immoral people. And the reason they're mindless and immoral is because rather than thinking for themselves, they're just chasing the latest review. They want to be seen at the, at the, at the best restaurant or the one that took the most amount of time to get a reservation at or the one that, you know, that Thomas Keller just opened or whatever. Right? And she argued that those are people who are not thinking about what they're doing. They're just chasing the crowd. Yeah. Um, and I thought, you know, that's, there's a lot of wisdom in that book. It had a profound influence on me and how I think about food and politics and life and i guess if i took anything away from it, it's the idea that it's it's a good thing to stop every once in a while and just ask why am i doing this the way i'm doing it and should i be doing it differently well i feel like i would be remiss then not to circle back to your book about the perfect omelet because like i said i've never <laughs> read a, such a philosophical cookbook in my life and i know i won't do it justice because you'll do better but It was so interesting, as you talked about in the beginning of that book, you kind of talked about your mother's quest for this perfect omelet and looking for the perfect recipe. And I couldn't help but relate it. And I'm sure you'll know the quotes better than I will, but it was kind of like, made you think like, if it was just the idea, like if I could just find this perfect recipe and be told what to do, 
everything would be wonderful. And it was like more like this, like, yes, like you're talking about an omelet, but in some ways, like I feel like we're all out there looking for this perfect recipe that's going to make everything just perfect. And I think you also say, and if you're looking, you'll find plenty of recipes out there that say, if you do just this and this, everything's going to turn out perfect. And so, you know, I feel like life, sometimes you feel like you're on this track where you're on these quests or being sold these ideas that are going to be the answer to all of your problems. And I just found it so interesting that you could, boil that down to this forever seeking the perfect omelet recipe. Um, So you're probably more of a philosopher than you give yourself credit for, but can you talk to me a little bit about that and kind of what your comments were on that? Because I just thought that that was actually very compelling. Well, remember earlier I said food is autobiography. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's part of that, right? I mean, that's, that's my mother's story, but it's not just a story about my mother's sometimes genuinely insane quest to find the recipe for the perfect omelet. I mean, and she really did take it to extremes. She probably read everything that was ever written about an omelet. Um, and if she's up in heaven, she's probably still reading recipes <laughs> for, for omelets. Um, but it wasn't just about reading recipes. It was sneaking her way into the back rooms of restaurants and then getting us thrown out, which she would always, <laughs> she would always do. I mean, she, I think I told a story at one point where she wouldn't pay for my date to go to the senior prom with me because she didn't like the frittatas that that restaurant was serving. <laughs> I mean, she really took it to an excess. And she brought me along on the quest for most of it. And like her for a long time, I thought, this can be done. There can be a perfect omelet. It wasn't helped, by the way, when I started becoming old enough to watch cooking shows. Mm-hmm. And I quickly learned that there was actually one guy in the world who could make a perfect omelet, Jacques Pepin, and he still can. Um, that was kind of disheartening because I thought, well, okay, somebody's already been there and done that. Nobody else is going to be able to do it. But for the rest of us who are just mere mortals, it took me a long time to realize something that I think my mother did realize too. And that is, it's there's something irreducibly human about looking for the perfect recipe. Mm-hmm. It, it relieves your burdens, right? I mean, it just takes all the decision-making away from you. It gives you a guide. And who doesn't want that on some level? I mean, even the great food writer MFK Fisher once said something to the effect that I'm a child of the 20th century. I, you know, I want to be told what to do. And, yeah. you know, if, if MFK Fisher wants to be told what to do, then surely it's okay for the rest of us to just want to crack open a book or call up a you know in a pinterest page or whatever and say just tell me how to do this time is short money is scarce i don't have time to be worrying about this and think about it there is a kind of this word is much abused now but there is a kind of privilege involved in saying i'm going to get two dozen farmers markets eggs at five dollars a dozen and i'm just going to experiment until i find the perfect omelet i mean come on nobody's got that kind of money or time or really interest, I suppose. Um, what I learned and what I think my mother learned is that there's not a perfect recipe for anything, not mm-hmm. for making an omelet, not for making her undeniably perfect cheesecakes, <laughs> not for raising children. Miriam made this point, there's no perfect recipe for how you conduct the family meal. There are lots of different ways to get to good enough. Mm-hmm. And what's critically important is that you think about how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's If there was one message I wanted people to get out of the perfect omelet, maybe there were two, maybe it's the same message. It's There isn't going to be a perfect omelet, but there's a lot of fun in trying, and there's a lot of learning in trying, and there's not a perfect way to live life. That's not what philosophy does. What philosophy does is simply tell you to think about how to do it, um, and thinking is intentionality. Thinking mm-hmm. is mindfulness. Um, I think the way I, I liked putting it the most, the one that resonated most with me is it's about paying attention um, to small little things because they'll be gone soon enough. um, And there's nothing more important than than the small little thing that's occupying your attention right now. That was what I was trying to get across. Yeah. And I think one of the things that at least the message I got, so hopefully that was what you're trying to relay was what my takeaway was, again, like you're not going to find the recipe for this perfect omelet. That's never going to happen. It's not out there and you're not going to do it. But I think some of the things that you highlighted were what can make for a really good omelet is good ingredients. So focusing on what you're putting into it, whether whether that's your omelet, your mind, 
whatever, right. your relationships. Yep. Um, yes. Good tools that don't have to be complicated or fancy, but just have to work well for you. Um, yeah. And then that mindfulness and intentionality, being present, paying yeah. attention. Because without those three things, you can you can really screw up your online <laughs> oh, yeah. or your life. Yeah. I guess it would, to me again, I was like just reading this. I'm like, is this about omelets? Because <laughs> I feel like I'm examining my whole life here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I was sending the book out to, uh, when my agent was sending the book out to publishers, I got back more than one, you know, sort of rejection. Uh, well, I got back hundreds of rejections, but but more than one said, I was looking for a cookbook. I wasn't looking for, uh, you know, uh, somebody to teach me how to be a priest or a minister or something. And there are a lot, and at one point I thought, well, that's it. That's, that's kind of what I was doing. I didn't realize it at the time. And one publisher actually wanted to change the name of the cookbook to something like Omelets as Ministry or something like that. And I was like, you know, it's bad enough as it is. Nobody's going to buy this book. Let's forget about the ministry part. But, but there was an element of truth there, I think. And um, I don't think I, I realized it until I was done with the book. But that's what my mom was teaching me. Uh, and, you know, there were lessons I learned the hard way. Mm -hmm. And there were some, in retrospect, that I wish she had not used at all. But but if what she was trying to teach me was, it's not about the perfect omelet. It's about paying attention and doing your best and making decisions in a kind of self-aware manner that, uh, yeah, I, I, and if I could see her, I'd say, you did good, Mom. No. Oh. Well, I can't think of a better way to end it than on that note. <laughs> so thank you so much. This was an absolute pleasure. Um, very great discussion and lots of food for thought. No pun intended. <laughs> um, but yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Anytime. Excellent. And thanks for joining us for another episode of Feeding the Family with Dr. Kristen. Um, if you're enjoying all of our episodes, please go ahead and hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to join us next week for a new episode.